0: So Galatians chapter 3 and it's verses 1 to 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you now are being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? that he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I have to say that these first nine verses are actually quite special verses to me. I can always remember once as a very young Christian in the house group. And we were studying these verses and as a young Christian and my zest to try and obey God and to grow in God and to somehow feel I was actually doing that. I had wandered into that wonderful trap called legalism. And I always remember reading these verses and how powerfully they spoke to me in that house group. It felt like God was speaking to me when he said, are you such a fool that what began by faith you're now trying to do by yourself? And it really challenged me at that time to reevaluate exactly how I was intending on being a Christian. And living the Christian life. And I wish I could say that at that point. I learnt that lesson. And that things went on well for me. But sadly they didn't. And I went back into I remember at one point I was. So desperate to have. Something discernible. Something I could grasp hold of. That made me think. Yes I'm definitely now a child of God. I've definitely now experienced that salvation. I remember. At one point I was. Like Probably about that close to embracing, I don't know how many of you have heard of this, but the King James only movement. The King James only movement is an argument which argues that the only authoritative English version of the Bible is the King James. Every other translation is perverse, it's been distorted, and is of the devil basically they would argue. So it's that version or no version. And you're not a Christian if you're reading any other version. I'll not tell you what their abbreviations are for some of our translations, but they're they're, they're not not pleasant. But I was so desperate for something that I felt, yes, I'm definitely a Christian. I remember once on our church anniversary, has has everyone heard of Adrian Plath? If you've not read his diaries, I I strongly recommend you read his diaries. They, They are brilliant. They're honest, they're real life, and they're... Absolutely hilarious. He's a very gifted writer, but I remember once he was coming to preach at Leslie Baptist Church, and this is when I was very much in my legalistic phase, and um, I was like, I don't want to be there. This man's offensive. And I took everything so seriously that I was actually not going to go. In the end, I did go, and I, had a really, I really enjoyed what he had to say. Um, and it was my pastor at the time, David Middlemas, his name was, and I think a lot of it came through as he was preaching for the book of First Corinthians, especially when he hit the chapter on love. Exactly what the danger of legalism is, because you are not looking to love one another anymore. It's this checklist of things that have to be met for you even to consider yourself or others Christians. And when you look into the Christian world and people who have embraced this kind of thinking, probably out of a desperation to try and feel they belong to God and his community, And in these legalistic areas, you get something tangible because you have a checklist you have to make. And if you you agree to them all, yes, you are part of that people. So there is something very tangible to that. But there's no love to anyone else. In fact, there's hostility. Because in their legalism, they've convinced themselves they're right. And that's a lot of what this Galatian church is at risk of. It's at risk Of making a real mess of things and embracing the law. And now there is much that was good about the law. And I don't know if you know much about the history of the law. The law was never meant to be a legalistic thing. It was actually a thing that was meant to represent grace. People weren't Jews or Israelites because they managed to obey the law. They were Jews and Israelites because they were born into it. And now you could enter into it, and there was a system to do that. But there was never a point where somebody had to earn their status as a Jew. It was always there. The law was just the way they continued to be part of God's people. It was meant to be the thing that made them unique amongst the nations, so they could be salt and light. And sadly, it went wrong for them. And they did enter into legalism, and they did begin to see Gentiles as wholly other to them. The concept of the Gentiles becoming Jews, which was totally legit, was eventually almost completely lost. I think that what we enter into here is the heart of Paul's challenge to the whole concept of legalism. And he uses logic, and he uses a lot of theology to try and counter the teaching of the false brothers. For he's pointing out something quite straightforward and sensible. The teaching that they're actually embracing contradicts how they've lived and engaged with God up to that point. His language in the nine verses is actually extremely strong. A lot of the time when Paul is speaking to other believers, he'll be using phrases like brothers. Now, brothers generally isn't a masculine thing. It is a theological thing. When he's saying brothers, he generally means those who are my kin through Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to communicate. That's why sometimes when we change it to Christians, we lose a bit of that. But there's none of that in these verses. These people are foolish Galatians. His language is strong. And he's asking them, who has cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? He's frustrated by what's going on in this church. And he's no doubt pretty worried about it as well. In fact, at one point he's asking them, was it all in vain? Is that what's happened? He speaks about how before their eyes, Christ was seen as crucified. Now that's not some reference to them being eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, because naturally they weren't. This is a fair period of time after the crucifixion. It's also a reasonable distance away from the crucifixion. It's strongly unlikely that any of them where witnesses to the crucifixion. But what it is, is a reference to what Paul resolved to do as he went into communities and preached. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the message that God gave Paul. And that was the message that he took out into the different communities. It's one of grace. One commentary describes it quite well and it, they contemporize what he's trying to communicate and say that the way he did things would have been like the huge hoardings that carry advertisements by roadsides today. That would be the best parallel in the modern world. There was no missing what Paul was announcing. Remember when I went to the tent mission, when I became a Christian, there was signs everywhere. You weren't left unsure of what you were going into. And for Paul... It would have been something quite similar. He was quite explicit. There was a one message that he wanted to proclaim and it was the message of Jesus Christ who died and rose again. The death, the resurrection of the Messiah. And it was by Jesus' own choosing to redeem and to reconcile sinners to the living God. This is what he proclaimed. A God that they could then call their Abba Father. They were a people who would be grafted into the living vine. They would be adopted as the children of God. And it's not because they followed the law, but because they're not because they're worthy, sorry, but solely because of God's grace. Little wonder he speaks of this being almost a spell. Little wonder he calls them foolish, because this is what he taught them, this is what they'd lived in, and now all of a sudden they were embracing something which completely contradicted it something entirely alien. To grace itself. One of the commentaries I was reading as I uh, reflected on these verses was was Martin Luther's and this very his very famous commentary on the Book of Galatians, which was a book he liked because it's a book about grace. There's other books that he's not so keen on. But one of the things he says is a Christian is beloved by God and a sinner. How can these two contradictions be harmonized? I am a sinner and deserve God's wrath and punishment. And yet the Father loves me. Christ alone can harmonize these contradictions. He is the mediator. Do you now see how faith justifies without works? Sin lingers in us and God hates sin. A transfusion of righteousness therefore becomes vitally necessary. This transfusion of righteousness we obtain from Christ because we believe in him. And I think that summarizes a lot. One of the questions I asked myself was, why did this teaching manage to grip these Galatians so strongly? Why did it work almost like a spell? Why was there such power in what these false teachers were teaching, if indeed it was completely alien and contradictory to what they'd experienced and heard taught to them so far? Because here was a church and a people who have heard and been established on grace. And now for some reason, they're trying to make themselves perfect by their own effort, by obeying a law. Really, they're forgetting all that they have received up to this point. Because they received it not through merit, but because of faith. And the faith they have itself was given by grace. Grace. But I think it's something that's within every human being. It's within us all to feel that we have to earn things, to feel that we have to prove ourselves worthy of something. These Galatians had bought into that kind of thinking. But I wonder if, in our society, which teaches that everything has to be earned, nothing comes for free. That's one of the mantras that we will grow up with, and it follows us all around. But are are we too then prone to buying in to such thinking? Are we prone to feeling that we have to prove ourselves before God or before others? Do we sometimes think we've got to do something to help him along as he tries to make us more like Jesus? We've got to do something ourselves to make ourselves perfect. You know, that quote from Luther describes for me the contradiction that as Christians we all face. But the truth is, when we look into ourselves, we are right to see that there are things that aren't right. Things that need to be changed. Things that aren't Christ-like. Things that are there that God doesn't want there. But the reaction to that must be, I believe, to lay ourselves before the throne of grace. To cry out for forgiveness. To call out to the Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, and to make us more like Christ. But I think a lot of the time, the reality is more that we decide within our minds, well, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And we decide instead that we're going to look into ourselves for our own strength and resolve with our power of our will that we are going to defeat sin. And I think when we do that, we enter into the realms of the Galatians and we forget where our strength actually comes from. Our strength doesn't come from within. It comes from above. And it's through that strength that we can live and defeat sin, not by looking into our own minds and resolving within ourselves. I find verse 3 quite fascinating. Because here, Paul takes it right back to the beginning when these people became believers, having began in the Spirit. Now I'm heading into perhaps some rocky territory here, and perhaps where angels fear to tread. But his point, I believe, needs to be unpacked. I remember when I was going before the selection committee, there was always one question that I dreaded, and praise God it didn't come up. The question I always dreaded was that one that has haunted the church, I would say, for centuries. And it's that theological question of, are you a Calvinist or are you an Armenian? Now, for those that don't know what those mean, brilliant. (laughs) But for those that do, I would say I am agnostic to either category because I think that when we pick a side, we lose something true from the other because there are truths I believe in both but I am heading into some rocky territory because how does the Christian life begin is it a case of we as clever and civilized enlightened individuals suddenly work out that we're in sin and then wisely turn to God do we switch that light on ourselves or is it more like scripture says when it says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of God. The faith that suddenly appears in us I do not believe we generate ourselves it is the gift of God. And I do feel that that could be heading into dangerous territory because Calvinism, Romanism has split the church in many petty ways for many centuries, but I strongly believe our rebirth, our salvation, that begins, that it began when the Spirit came and switched the light on in our lives, when He revealed the truth and gave us faith. And I think that ties in with what Paul's saying here: the beginning is not human work, but it's grace. How we become a child of God isn't because we sussed something out. But it's because God came knocking, switched the light on, and then we wisely in light of truth turned in repentance to God. But that beginning point isn't because we got clever. It's because God came. And I believe that's what he's trying to point out to this church. How could you be so foolish, he's saying to them. You just didn't suss this out. God came and gave you faith. That faith gave you the spirit. Why are you now trying to turn to the flesh in order to achieve what you want to achieve? The beginning is grace. Paul knew, and these Gentiles would have known it. Let's, let's be realistic. These people wouldn't have had a clue about who God was. They were Gentiles, they were pagans, they were living in a Roman society in Galatia, a fair distance away from Judaism. They might have had some idea of what Judaism was. But when Paul came, God moved, and these people came to know the living God. What I think he's telling them is our beginning is grace, our remaining is grace, and our development is grace as well. Now let me make it clear I'm not for a second advocating that we develop passive faiths where we do not look for change. Where we can sit idly on a seat and just say well God's going to do it all. I can just sit here and do absolutely nothing. That's not what I'm trying to advocate here. And it's definitely not the kind of faith where we can decide in our minds I can do as I please because there's grace enough to cover it. Scripture forbids such of you. And it's really of little faith at all. What I'm advocating is that we have a faith in which we know who our rock is. A faith where we know where our strength comes from. And that's a faith that knows it's not from within, but it is from above. A faith where we look to God and we cry out to Him. And yes, of course. We want to see growth in our lives. We want to see see ourselves becoming more like Jesus. And yes, it's frustrating when we sometimes look back and we think, actually, I think I was more like Jesus two years ago than what I am now. Maybe it's just me that sometimes thinks like that. But we need to do it for the strength of Christ, with our eyes upward, not inward. Knowing that through him and him alone can we defeat the power of sin in our lives not by making resolutions in our heart and striving with on our own strength to do that we need to cry upward. I think another thing that Paul addresses here is I think a really important concept for every person on earth and it's the concept of belonging part of me wonders if that's what these Galatian people were seeking something that was physically tangible to say yes I now belong to God's people There would have been a physical enactment of that. It would have been a rather sore one, but it would have been there. Something that made them feel like they were God's people. Something that made them feel like they belonged. Something obvious that marked them out as the people of God. Was that what they were trying to do? Was that why they were embracing a law which told them that circumcision was still to be enacted? But Paul speaks right back to the very covenant starter, right back to Abraham, the man in whom the covenant was handed to. Abraham was counted as righteous, but it was because he had faith. That's what Paul tells us in this chapter. Now, I know that in James, he takes a somewhat different view, but we're not preaching on James this morning. And when we do preach on James, we'll tackle why he's saying that. But Abraham had a faith, and that faith was counted to him is righteousness, and Paul states that's why Scripture says all the nations will be blessed through him, because they knew, naturally it was God's plan. As God inspired Scripture, they knew what the plan it knew what the plan was. The plan was that Jesus Christ would come, and that faith would be what makes the Gentiles right. They too would be God's people by faith. And I wonder, I ask myself the question, how do we get a sense of belonging to God today? Is it something we try and add works to? Or how about belonging to the community, to the church? Do we feel there are things that we have to do to conform to before we can feel we're part of God's people? Or perhaps we feel like we don't belong this morning because we feel we can't do those things. And we don't feel we're part of God's people because there are certain things we feel we're not meeting. Well, let me tell you what I think that must be there for us to belong to God and his people. That's faith. That I believe is the one thing that has to be there. A faith that knows that Jesus Christ is the only hope the knows he is the way, the truth, and the life. A faith that desires to centre our whole life around the teachings of Scripture. But it's a faith that will very rarely hit the bullseye and often miss the mark. But it's a faith nonetheless. A faith that means surrendering to God, to living under him, not perfectly, but humbly relying on his grace. To belong to God and to his community, that's all we need to have. We don't need to have our house in perfect order. We don't need to have the great job and everything sorted. Our life can actually be complete chaos still. But the faith is there to centre our life around the living God. That takes time. Our becoming more like Christ is an entire life project and it's very unlikely that we're actually going to end our life and say, yes, I'm totally like Jesus. Our lives in Christ begin with different levels of mess, but they're all, some of it's times it's better hidden than others, but there's always a lot of mess there. To belong to God, to his community, that's what we need to have. If you trust Jesus and seek to follow him, Then I believe we've met the requirements to belong to God, to be adopted as His child. In fact, that's already happened at that point, and to belong to a church community. And it's not because we merit it, and it's not because we've earned it, it's because we have that faith that's been given by God, and because the Spirit is working in us. I don't think there's anything else we have to do to conform. And I can stand here quite comfortably and say that one of the classes we have at college is called Baptist Identity, which is where we make sure that they thoroughly brainwash you into Baptist principles. And they make sure that, yes, you're definitely a Baptist when you leave the college. But it's a really, really good class. And it helps you to learn what it actually means to be Baptist and how Baptist is slightly different to other flavors of Christianity. I'm not going to say it's more right or more wrong. I'll just keep that to myself. I know what Stuart Blythe would say, but it's a great class, but one of the things that we strongly hold to as Baptists is a believer's community. And that's why, when you're going for church membership to become an official part of that community, the thing we will ask you about in interview is your faith, as we try to discern has this person had that encounter with God? Because it's a believing community. Now that means that as we say on a Sunday morning, anyone can come through the doors and that's absolutely fantastic. They don't have to be a believer. But it does mean to become an official part of the community. You do have to be a believer. And that's just what Baptists hold to it. And I think that's entirely scriptural. But to be part of that community, the one thing that I believe we clearly need is only faith. And faith in a living God. And once that is clear, the church, it recognizes that you already belong to God. And then it declares that you now belong to the community itself. To close, I want to read another quote from Martin Luther. And he says Learn to understand the constitution of your Christian righteousness. Faith is weak, but it means enough to God that He will not lay sin to our charge, He will not punish or condemn us. He will forgive our sins as through they amount to nothing at all. And he will do it, not because we're worthy of such mercy. He will do it for Jesus' sake, in whom we believe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of faith. Lord, the gift that you've given to us. A gift that means that we now know you as our Abba Father. A gift that means we're adopted into your family. Lord, a gift that means we have the full assurance of your love. Lord, a gift that means salvation for our souls. Not because we're worthy. Not because we merit or deserve it. But Lord, because you gave it. So we thank you for that gift. And Lord, help us to understand the preciousness of faith. And help us, Lord, as a people, Lord, a people who have received grace, to then express, to show and to live grace to our other brothers and sisters and to the town that we live in. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. And I do pray that you would help each of us to know, Lord, in the certainty of our hearts, that we belong to you, that we are your children. Not because we've worked for it, not because we strive for it now, but because of Jesus Christ and because you hold us in your hand. So, Lord, I pray that you would replace anything in our hearts that's legalistic, that's insecure, that's uncertain. Instead, with joy, thanksgiving, and certainty of the loving acceptance of our loving Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.